0: Listeners, welcome to Define Normal, a podcast where everything and nothing is normal. I'm your host, Shelby, and today I'm joined by my friend, Shelly. Shelly is a provisionally licensed clinical psychologist who works as a mental health counselor in university and private practice settings. She concentrates her academic research and clinical work in gender diversity and human sexuality. Throughout our conversation, Shelly and I talk about openness in therapy. We talk about sexuality. We talk about norms surrounding therapy, amongst other things. It's a really awesome conversation. And without further ado, I'll let you get to the interview. Hi, Shelly. Welcome to Define Normal. Hello. Thank you. It's so good to have you. I know this podcast has been a long time coming, and we are finally here. No, it's so true. I was
1: reflecting because I swear, I remember us like in a hotel room, in Chicago hanging out and you being like, I want to write a book, like I want to start a podcast, and me being like, Yeah,
0: have me on it when you do it. And like, here we are. It's just so surreal. Well, here we are. I'm pumped to have you. And just like to kick off the episode, I would love for you to share a quick little bit about yourself. I'm Shelly. I use she her
1: pronouns. I am a provisionally licensed clinical psychologist and work in university settings and private practice settings as a therapist. I'm originally from New York State, but I've lived in Pennsylvania, Chicago, Philadelphia, and now I live in Texas. So
0: I love hearing about all of your adventures now. I mean, we met in Chicago and now we've both lived a little of everywhere. I mean, I'm in your home state, but yeah, Texas it is (laughs) for you. You You are a therapist. And I think right now in the climate, there's a lot of talk about mental health constantly. Like I, when I was younger, I never had a therapist. I know Some people did, and it's like been more progressive now to talk about it. Part of the reason I wanted to have you on the episode Beyond Being a Dear Friend, we always get into these conversations that are like almost feel like therapy, to be honest, where it's like I'm sharing what's going on with me, you're sharing what's going on with you. Mm -hmm. We like have all these like deep thoughts. And so, of course, I wanted to get your thoughts on all things therapy, mental health, sexuality, like all kinds of things. So the first thing I want to get into is the podcast is called Define Normal, right? And there's a Mm -hmm. lot of norms around therapy. I think you know there are two buckets. People who've never been to therapy, they have their Mm -hmm. own assumptions about what the norms are, and then people who go to therapy, what they assume the norms to be. So Mm -hmm. from your standpoint, how do you work with those norms? And do your clients often come to you and ask you, like, is this normal? Like, yeah. Can you shed some light on that? I'd love to hear your POV there. First and foremost,
1: I just love the name Define Normal. I think I shared that with you when you first started and titled it because I think the concept of normal is just so like deep and vast. But to answer your question specifically, people definitely have preconceived notions about therapy and what's normal for therapy. First of all, like is going to therapy normal, right? It's like you hear that thing of like, oh, therapy, yeah, that's for crazy people, air quotes, crazy. So it's like not normal to go to therapy. Or if people have ideas about therapy. They are expecting something. So, I have clients that come in and they're like, "So, are you going to give me worksheets or are you going to ask me how I feel?" right? So, people come in having preconceived notions of like, "What is this going to be like? Are are you going to do the stereotypical like, and how does that make you feel?" or, you know, the more structured worksheets type of thing. So, every therapist or therapeutic intervention has its own style and again the mental health field is very vast and varied but yeah clients always come in with sort of preconceived notions or they're nervous if they've never done therapy for the first time they're like I don't know what to do like what even is therapy right what's normal or clients will even be like am I doing a good job like am I being a good therapy client as if there's like a standard for like what a good therapy client is that is sort of preconceptions or norms that come to mind when I think about how normal relates to like therapy and people's approach or avoidance of therapy.
0: So when it comes to norms and topics that you discuss with your clients, do you think that this attachment to wondering what's normal is rooted in shame? So like, for example, say like, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but I keep getting these TikToks about people who are ethically non-monogamous, hard to say. You know, every time one of those comes up, this came up in a group chat yesterday. Like someone's in a TikTok and they're like, I could never do this. How do this how do people keep this together? And so, like, when people are sharing things with you, that's just one example, that feel outside of the norm, do you think they come to you with some kind of shame? And is it shame rooted in what they're actual shameful about what they're doing, or they're shameful that it's not normal? When
1: someone is coming in and they're either like explicit, or even implicitly sort of asking me, is this normal? Shame is definitely underneath that. Because for me, I kind of take a sort of like top-down approach when someone asks me if something that they're experiencing or they desire is normal. It's sort of like, well, what does normal mean to you? What do you mean by that? Do you mean, is it normal in that it happens in the the human race? Is it normal, like common versus something that's maybe less common? Is it something that's like distressing or adaptive, normal as adaptive, right? I'm always kind of trying to get at what people are asking when they're asking if something they're experiencing or they desire is normal. Typically in therapy, someone is coming in with shame about something that is not normal as in maybe it's something that's othered or maybe a more marginalized experience or something that is talked about colloquially in society as not normal or strange or weird and I'm as a therapist typically in the space of like debunking that of like who makes these rules like or you know in my work in the university clients and students are being exposed to difference maybe for the first time like they grew up in their home that was normal and in their community that was normal and then they go to college or university for the first time and then realize there are so many versions of normal and then maybe reflect and are like wait, I'm actually not sure if what I experienced was normal, aka, probably distressing or harmful or or bad. To your point of what's normal, either for a person and the shame around that versus what's normal in society, and the shame around that, I think it's interesting to think about normal as something that shifts through time and space and is like socio-culturally indicated. And so like there is no capital T truth about what is normal, like it changes. And so when someone is like, this community or society or, you know, insert, whatever force is telling me this isn't normal. So I have shame about it. It's like, in my role, I'm trying to figure out okay, is this a place where I kind of like debunk and try to unpack, like, where did that come from? And is that true for you? Or is this something that's distressing that actually we should sort of work on to change? Always towing that line.
0: Are there a lot of norms that reoccurrently come up? Like, are there themes that people are like seeking almost, it seems like validation around? The one that
1: comes up the most to me and is honestly the most shocking is just like emotions right How there's this negative connotation with feelings or being emotional it's so apparent in the therapeutic space when like people will sit down and be like, oh I don't want to cry well why? or I think this or I feel this and I shouldn't why shouldn't you? There's so much self-invalidation around just, someone's own thoughts and feelings because for whatever reason along the way they got the message that they shouldn't cry crying is bad crying makes you weak etc or they shouldn't think that that's wrong or it means x about this as a per- as them as a person that always is in the work the shame or desiring validation that like they can feel something or think something. And it doesn't mean necessarily anything about them as a person. It's actually probably really natural and normal that they're like thinking that thought or feeling that feeling. So I think that's definitely something that comes up a lot.
0: That's come up in my own therapy. I remember my therapist gave me a feelings chart because she was like, you don't ever talk about your feelings. It's like tell stories about things. I never am like, so... And this is, I felt sad when that happened, or I was upset. I'm just like, very literal, this is what happened. I think, really interesting point, because people just aren't encouraged to work through their feelings. I don't know. I mean, my norm was like, my family's not overly emotional. So I was just like, I'm not overly emotional. But it's interesting, like what you said through therapy, I was definitely that person. Oh, yeah. And like,
1: to be fair, I'm also that person. Like, I will sit across from someone in a therapy session as the therapist and they'll tell me like, I shouldn't feel this or I'm frustrated that I feel this. And I'm like, it's okay that you feel that. And then I straight up go sit in my therapy office as the client and I'm like, I'm so frustrated that I feel this. And so it's, I'm the same.
0: So we touched on the topic of sexuality a tiny bit earlier when I brought up my question about people being ethically non-monogamous. And I'm curious to hear how does sexuality play a role in therapy? Um, right now, I ask this because I'm, like, all over TikTok constantly. Yeah, like, yeah, TikToks periodically. And there's so much chatter about sexuality in general, whether it's, like, people being bisexual, which is not revolutionary, but there's just so much discussion. Like, you and I kind of book club, Jen's book, Greedy. And yep, then yep. there's a lot of content on TikTok about being bisexual. There's a lot of content on TikTok about being gay. There's a lot of content on TikTok about, like, having open marriages. So, like... How does that play a role in your profession? Also, like, if you feel comfortable sharing your own life. Diversity
1: in sexuality has always been around. It's just, again, in terms of, like, defining normal, talking about sexuality, or being kinky, or polyamorous, or gay, bi, not straight, that's been not normal. Other Something that's shameful that you don't talk about because of homophobia, biphobia, being in a very sex-negative culture. Something that's interesting in therapy is that even though I advertise myself as someone that specializes in gender and sexuality, it's possibly the one topic that people always ask permission to talk about. Can we talk about sex in here? Or I wanted to talk about something, but it's like sexual. Is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, we literally talk about everything in here. This is the place where you're supposed to talk about everything. Why would that not be okay? And also, again, like I advertise myself as someone that is comfortable talking about these things. And I imagine that my clients seek me out for that because those are topics they want to talk about. And yet they're still sort of like, asking permission to talk about that with me. So I think that's interesting. It's so funny in my own experience, thinking about the ways that internalized homophobia and biphobia have impacted me in the sense that I identified as straight until very recently. It's like once you make that click, of like maybe I have experienced attraction or desire for not just the quote unquote opposite sex. It's like you start to almost reprocess all of your past experiences and the ways in which, like when I was crushing on girls or women, people were like, Oh, you well, you just have a girl crush, or you just want to like be that person because like being gay or being attracted to the same sex is quote unquote, not normal. Similarly to you, I've been obviously concentrating in gender and sexuality academically for like a decade. But in terms of applying that or feeling comfortable applying that to my own personal experience, it was only until recently, through the normalization, talking about sexuality, that if you did feel certain things, like it wasn't just like, a girl crusher you want to be them maybe that is something meaningful about you and your sexuality so it's definitely opened up my eyes and like applied to me personally in a way that I think was surprising even though it's hilarious because me like concentrating in gender and sexuality for a long time I was sort of like yeah I'm just so curious I'm just so curious about the variety of gender and sexuality like I'm totally cis and I'm totally straight but I'm just so curious. And even in my pursuit of studying gender and sexuality, people were quite like hostile about that. Like I remember being a college student volunteering for like a LGBT youth center and talking to like a friend of a friend's, like family friend about that. And he was like, well, are you gay? And I was like immediately on the defense. And I was like, no, no. It was almost like this like guilty by association. The fact that I was even studying gender and sexuality from an academic lens. It's like, well, why? I remember my family being like, do you have to tell, do you have to tell us something? And me like being like, no. And then also like crying and being like, well, what if I did? Like, what if I did have to tell you something? Like, this is such a weird way to approach me, like taking an interest in this through the normalization of talking about like the nuance of sexuality It's like given me permission to kind of apply it to myself in a way that for a while was just so like fraught and like untouchable.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I think that a lot of people relate to the point where it's almost feels odd to talk about it because Mm -hmm. the norm, I would say in American culture is like, you don't talk about your sex life. Like you just don't. So to the point where I think we all have some level of unlearning to do because It started for me, like, as a kid, preteen, teenager, where you're, like, you you see things on TV. You see, like, a sex scene, and you're, like, cringing away from your parents. Or, like, um, I started getting Seventeen Magazine as a preteen, and they're, Uh like, talking about hooking up with boys, and I'm, like, and people would say to my mom, I can't believe you let her read that. And like, Uh Uh just all this drama around sexuality to the point where it makes it shameful. Like, everybody knows that everybody's doing it, but Mm -hmm. you, like... Shouldn't speak about it, and then yeah, it's like two sides of the coin, right? Because it's like there's this shame, and then there are people who talk about it, and this very like Cosmo magazine—I don't know how else to describe it—kind of way where you're like, "What? <laughs> Why are you talking about it like that?"
1: Our culture is so weird in that way that it's simultaneously like so hypersexual and sex focused, and then so sex negative, and the messaging is so confusing. It's like I know there's this. Thing I'm supposed to want and be good at but no one teaches me and then like shames me for wanting it or being good at it I don't know not being good at it necessarily but <laughs> like maybe wanting it too much it's like you have to just sure, always be like towing the line of what's socially acceptable because I think something that's so interesting is how asexuality is this like other not normal thing. It's almost like you have to want sex, but never talk about it. And if you don't want it, there's something wrong with you. Why, is the, why are we not allowed to have like variations in our sexual desires or our drives? There's so many like common misconceptions about who you're attracted to or how sexual you are, how much sex you want, don't have too much, don't have too little... Yeah, it's just an impossible line to tell.
0: Yeah, there's no answer.
1: Yeah, and it really impacts people. I mean, it impacts me, it impacts clients. Yeah, what does it mean if I don't want to have sex with my partner today? It's like, oh no, it's like, I just don't want to? Like, that's fine. Or yeah, I could go on forever of just examples of how people think they're supposed to be sexually versus just like, the way they are being is probably fine and normal.
0: I think that's my favorite part about our conversations because I will ask you or I'll describe something to you and I'm like, but like, is that weird? Or like, why? And even before, like, cause when we met, you were in grad school. So even before you were like fully into your profession, it was just like, I would have conversations with you and you were kind of like, I don't know. Like (laughs) even though you were internally working through your own life, I think you're a person who has always in some ways kind of questioned like, I'm not really sure that I'm exactly like the status quo. I'm not. Right. And I, and I really enjoy that because I mean, obviously that's why I started the podcast, but it's, it's very interesting when people look at things through that lens.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Now that we have covered sexuality, I want to talk a little bit about gender, gender in terms of sexuality, but also just like separately. Like the first thing I want to ask is when we talk about like sex drive and perception and like how much sex are you having? Like a lot of that times that's put on women where, if you're a woman, you shouldn't want sex too much. You shouldn't, like, be too sexual. You shouldn't do this. If you mm-hmm. are advertising yourself, like, you are slutty. Like, whatever, like, derogatory yeah, yeah, yeah. terms they give us. who mm-hmm. I don't feel like men get that as often. So I'm curious about, like, sexuality and gender. But then I'm also just curious about, like, the larger gender conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. we can we can tackle one at a time. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, just quickly,
1: I actually – want to challenge what you just said a little bit like I don't disagree with the pressure on women to be super towing a line when it comes to sex but I think the same applies for men and it's sort of again in like cis heterosexual relationships Mm -hmm. right because again there's like this intersectionality of all our different social identities and every person is this like Amalgamation of oppression and privileged identities. But men, I think the sex norm is that they should always be desiring sex. And that's really problematic too. You know, so for women, maybe it's like, don't want to have sex or don't desire it too much or you're a slut. But for men, it's like, you should always be desiring sex. And what's wrong with you if you don't or you can't get it up or There's a lot of shame around that too, where men are not encouraged to just want to chill or cuddle. And I think that comes up a lot with clients and just even in my own relationships of like unlearning, you know, yeah, if my male partner doesn't want to have sex with me, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with me. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with him. Like we're allowed to on any given day, just like not be down for that. So yeah, that was just sort of like a first reaction, gender and sex. I think when I'm talking or any conversation talking about gender, I think you first have to start with biological sex, right? Because there are these two things that get really conflated when they're very different. So I think starting with biological sex is really important because the norms around biological sex are that it's very binary. You're... biological female or a biological male and then it's well documented in the research that that's not true it's not binary and biological sex is made out of like a variety of characteristics so you know when you're born and the doctor says it's a boy or it's a girl they're looking at your genitalia sometimes genitalia is a bit more ambiguous But also there are like processes going on inside of us, our chromosomes, our hormone production, our hormone response, gonads, whether we have testes or ovaries. So there's so much variety that's actually normal in biological sex. So just starting there, right, that we're sort of flawed as a society in the way that we think about biological sex. And then on top of it, gender is our like sociocultural beliefs about what it means to have that certain sex, right? So you're born, it's a girl. And now all of a sudden there are all these assumptions about what this baby who's been existing for two seconds and has like a certain genitalia is going to like, is going to dislike, is going to desire, is going to be interested in certain jobs they were going to want to have, their preferences for their style or hair or body hair or all of these things that, again, are very binary, either you're a man or a woman, which again, there is a variety to people's gender identities, the same way there's a lot of variety to biological sex. And then all of that comes into play when we talk about sexuality norms, sort of like your sex assigned at birth, there's an assumption that you're going to identify as the gender that's aligned with your sex assigned at birth. And then you're going to be attracted to the opposite sex. And then you're going to have this like very cookie cutter, boxed off experience of sex and sexuality and romanticism that is rarely true, or someone's feeling some shame or like they're not normal because they don't perfectly fit that box when from my
0: perspective I'm like how like how could you even yeah I'm embarrassed to admit until I took a gender studies class in college maybe sophomore year junior year I never thought too hard about this because obviously the privilege you said something earlier that really resonated with me like we're all kind of like a culmination of like different privileges and experiences and I think my privilege being like a straight cis woman is it's just I never really thought about it. Like I yeah. was assigned female at birth. I feel like I align with most female traits outwardly at least. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like how I dress, how I wear my hair. Like I there was no friction there for me. It just kind of did it was it was whatever, which is fine. But I think the acknowledgement that people who don't fall in or people who fall into that category have to do mm-hmm. is like, okay, not everyone feels that way. Yeah. So how is the world set up? So we did a very like typical um, exercise, which again, I've never thought about. I've been in a Target a million times. Our professors like go to Target, go look in the toy section, see how they market some toys toward boys and some toys t- toward girls. I've never thought about this. I don't have a kid. I don't go to the toy section. Last time I was in the toy section, I had a kid or I was a kid. <laughs> and I was like, no, I do not have a kid. <laughs> so, fact, check, fact, check. fact check, I don't have a kid. And so I didn't think about it. We spend like an hour in Target. We're writing down the toys. We're like, Looking at pink backgrounds, blue backgrounds, whatever. We come back and share it with the class. And I'm like, oh, this is a thing. Ever since then I've decided, okay, you're gonna have to clue in. And now it's been fascinating, which is again why I love TikTok, because you're watching like everyday people, like not everyone's an influencer, kind of like working this, working through this. So mm. there's a music, there's like a what would we call Pablo? Like they critique pop culture and music, essentially. I wanna I wanna okay. say music critic. Okay. But What I love is Pablo's identity is not the center of their content, but it's also very obvious in their content. And they actually have on their bio like the pronouns. But what I love is like, there's a call out of people are are misgendering. There is Mm -hmm. like, up and up front like it doesn't mm-hmm. matter to me kind of like how you think I identify like it's very mm-hmm. clear that you're trying to figure it out and there's nothing to figure out I kind of just am yeah totally that's been an interesting work through because when I talk to friends about it anything that's not normal I mean again that's why I started the whole podcast is like I feel in defense I feel in defense of anyone who's othered because even though in this category yeah. I'm privileged yeah I am yeah. othered I'm a woman I'm black so I'm kind of like we're not gonna do that. Like, very sure. much like ever since I took that class, and I think there's so much oh, yeah. more for me to me to learn. But to your point mm-hmm. about just being fascinated, I was so fascinated because I'm like, that's true though. Like, yeah. There, yeah. Maybe it, I don't feel that way about my gender, but there are norms just in life that I'm like, why would I have to do that?
1: Well, I love the assignment that your professor gave you because I think something that's so fascinating and fucked up. Is that the polarization of sex and gender wasn't always that way. And it is a kind of relic of living in a capitalist society that's like, how do we sell more stuff? We can't just have toys. We have to have girls' toys and boys' toys. And we can't just have razors. We have to have pink razors and blue razors. And actually, men are the only ones that have facial hair and we're marketing the razors. So men shave, but how do we sell more razors? Okay, actually now women need to shave and what should they shave? They don't have facial hair. Okay, their body hair. It all is just just like capitalist propaganda that again, when I was learning all about this in my courses, my mind would be blown. I was like, why am I shaving my body hair every day. And I would go talk to my friends and I would be like, you know, this is like this lie that they've been selling us. And they're like, Oh no, like, it's just what you do. It's just feminine. It's just girly. Like, and that would frustrate me so much that I'm like, no, listen, like something's going on here. Like something's wrong here. And they would be like, no, I mean, that just, is what it is. The toy example is so funny because it's like, where does this even come from? These like super rigid, polarized gender norms. It's like, why? When, like, again, according to research and psychology, there are more between group differences, or sorry, within group differences than between group differences, right? Like, one man is going to be more different than another man than um, maybe one man and one woman like psychologically, and we're actually more similar than different. And yet you walk into a kid's toy aisle and it's like, these are for two different people. And then that sense of belonging comes in. It's like, well, what if my male child wants to have long hair and wear a dress? It's like, no, they're going to, you know, get made fun of in school. So we have to like push them into this box. So it's just this feedback loop that kind of like feeds itself in terms of your own reflection on, your identities and things. Again, it's so interesting to me that in learning about gender and sexuality, again, from a very intellectualized academic standpoint, I really didn't let that knowledge like penetrate me in my identities for so long. So it's so funny to hear you be like, well, yeah, as a cis straight person, I'm like, well, I identified as that at one point. And then that changed for me when I started to like understand these concepts a bit more or apply them to myself a bit more. Like I said, I would learn these things in school and then run back to my friends and be like, do you guys know what heteronormativity is? Like, it's this brainwash that like, we're all supposed to be straight. Like, I think I'm gay. And they would be like, well, do you like girls and again i'd be like well no it's like well then you're not gay and as if it's like not such a complicated question right similarly with gender growing up i was always told by like peers or like family that bad at girl things right shelly's bad at girl things and again this was in a very specific culture as a white jewish upper middle class person from a suburb of New York, right? Being bad at girl things meant I like didn't have good style or I like wasn't rich. It was like really interconnected. But as I kind of learned a bit more about gender, I was sort of like, well, maybe this is meaningful. Like maybe I am bad at girl things. And that is something that's meaningful to me and my identities. And then when I started exploring that and talking about that, it was the same people that told me I was bad at girl things that were like, well, you're a girl, you're a woman. Like you were just, it just is what it is. Like, what do you mean?
0: And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Like, no, I think it's fascinating because I am that friend too, who's in the group message. Like, but why do we think that? Why, why does it have to be this way? Because Mm -hmm. I too often have these times where I want to just like run and have someone understand, like, no, this is all made up. Like, my whole essence as a person is like, we don't have to do that. Like there is some stuff I do because I want to, and maybe it aligns with the norm, but I'm not blindly doing things because someone who doesn't live in my life told me that I should do them. And the best people can come to terms with that and kind of move on. But Mm -hmm. it's very hard to have those conversations when it's like, you're not hearing me. And I promise you there are things you don't want to do. Like, yep, yep. Maybe it's not you're bad at girl things, but maybe you don't want to leave the house made up. That's one of my like big. I don't do that. I don't put makeup on to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Maybe to a wedding. I learned how to do my makeup as an adult, and it's still yeah. pretty not that great. Uh-huh. And I don't. I didn't even wear makeup to prom. And it's like, no, I don't want a gold star for it. I just never cared about. Sure. I never thought there's a TikTok sound. I'm gonna I'm gonna reference it for the 30 million time do it, do that it. says. I do everything for the bitches. Nothing I do is for the male gaze. And I was like, when I say that resonates, I'm Uh like, I, like, do I do everything I do for girls? No, but I take that more as like, I do whatever I do for me. And like what people are kind of like, my person. I want to present my personality when I go out. I'm not like, do men think I'm attractive because I'm wearing makeup?
1: Right, right. And I think something that's so interesting too is like, I am confession, a retired, pick-me girl who like totally did care about the male gaze. And it was so interesting how, as I was unpacking gender, I was unpacking how much of my gender performance was like for the male gaze, but that's a whole aside. And then it's like so interesting how that was a part of my identity for so long. It's like, yeah, I don't get done on. I don't do makeup. I'm bad at girl things. And then now as I've actually like leaned into, okay, like what does this mean about me? Maybe I am more genderqueer. Now I really like getting done up and like wearing makeup. And for a while I was like, well, no, Shelly, you don't like that. I like put myself in a box. And I think that's something that's so interesting that happens with the queer community is when they are othered. Or someone comes out as trans or non-binary, it's like, I have to be this like, completely androgynous or super hyper feminine and super hy- hyper masculine. When it's like, oh, actually no, I can be a trans man and paint my nails. I don't have to like disavow all of femininity because now I identify as a man or always have, but like, am now like labeling myself as a trans man. My dissertation was on non-binary gender identity. So funny looking back at that now, because again, it started as this like whisper of like, you know, you had just man woman and then it was like, trans was more normalized in the media. So you could be like a trans man or a trans woman. And then it was like, non binary or gender fluid. And I was like, hmm wait a minute, what's that? I never felt like a man per se, or that I wanted to be a man, but I definitely didn't feel woman either. And so when I heard about non-binary gender identity, I like perked up and I was just, again, so interested, so fascinated. Like, what is this? Who identifies as this? Like, could it be me? It couldn't be me. So I did my whole ass dissertation on gender identity, fully identifying as a cisgender straight person because I was just so curious. I fully expected my dissertation participants to walk in and be completely androgynous, not fitting any box. And like a part of one of my findings in the project was this like process of feeling uncomfortable in sex assigned at birth, gender assigned at birth, disavowing that completely and the pendulum swinging, right? Because it's binary, you have to choose one or the other. And then realizing like, ooh, that's not really working and finding this like happy medium somewhere in the middle where they could just be like authentic. And I think a lot of people would resonate with that regardless of how they identify, right? This idea that there's this like pressure to be something that doesn't feel right because of gender or sexuality. And that's where that sort of like, oppressive social norm is like functioning inside of us so yeah
0: I love that you keep saying because I was so interested as if it had nothing to do with me (laughs) women are still doing that work and men too and it's fun it's like fun to see people work through it to be honest Mm -hmm. like I'm enjoying friends and strangers on the internet watching them like unpack why do I think these things because I think like when you think about relationships like I'm a person who dates men and it's like I don't want to date a man who expects like who has these very strong male tendencies that are aligned with like norms. And yeah. they expect me to have these very like strong female tendencies and there can be no, no discrepancies. Like you do this, I do that. And that's terrifying, but <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. good to see people at least like churning their wheels a little bit of like, does it have to be that way? Does it serve us to be that way?
1: Yeah, to your point, it also emphasizes the time and space element of gender norms, right? And how there's this, like, yeah, we're not in the 50s anymore where you, like, need a man to open up a credit card, like a husband, or, like, we're moving away from these gender norms or, like, the gender norms are shifting where it's, like, if you're a man who dates a woman who expects me to be this stereotypical woman Is there more variety there? And also, I think something that's really interesting that I had to come to terms with was that still works for some people and that's okay. Oh my gosh, when I was debating moving to Texas, it was for my husband and my husband's job. And here I am, this like feminist, there's no way I could uproot my life for my male partner, right? And it really was a process for me of like, what does it mean to be a feminist? And what does it mean for me? Or what does it look like for me? And I had this idea of like, it doesn't mean following a man to Texas. But then I was like, wait a minute, no, like feminism is women or any gender doing anything they want. And I want to move to Texas to be with my husband. So, or women who like, don't want to work and just want to be at home taking care of children it's like that's fine to want that even if it's we're progressing away from that as like a gender norm I think it's interesting how again the pendulum can swing and be like oh you know what's wrong with you that you just want to be a housewife that doesn't work it's like there's nothing wrong with that actually it just isn't for everyone
0: Totally. And I think that that's what is missing, that nuance for most of the conversations, because I'm totally down for everyone doing what they want to do. But where it gets weird is, I think it's hard for humans to accept that without passing judgment. So it's like, I'm a person who lives in New York City, but is from the Midwest. So it's very much like, okay, you're almost 30 years old. Like how, like, when is this over? Like in most people's heads, it's like, this should be, you should be wrapping up. This was your fun New York era. And now you move somewhere and you get married and you buy a house. Why aren't you doing those things? I don't really let that affect me because I feel like my whole life path has just been a bunch of things that wouldn't happen in the Midwest. So that's fine. But I think that like you, it takes a a bit of confidence or like blind faith sometimes. Sometimes it's not even confidence, Mm, blind faith and just knowing like, this is what you want. In terms of you moving you know, to Texas, it's like Yes, I'm this feminist. Yes, I'm really independent, but like I want to be with my husband. Like that's what I want. I'm allowed to be both. And so I think we're all working through that because you're right. It does become very extreme. Now that we're talking about your husband, I want to <laughs> talk – Segway. I want to talk about your wedding, though. So yeah, I watched your wedding on Zoom mm-hmm. and it was hilarious. I don't think you know this, but I was at a graduation party. At the time. Oh my god! <laughs> my mom, one of my mom's good friends from college, her daughter graduated NYU dental school, and she was having a party. So I'm at the party with my phone, like stopped up, I watching, watching you <laughs> get married. Oh my god! Zoom. I'm
1: obsessed with that. I mean, in your defense, I gave you what a 24 hour turnaround.
0: I wasn't gonna miss it. Not even uh, Zoom. <laughs> I love that. That's so sweet. I was very perched up. I'm like, Shelly's getting married. I'm like the mean girl's mom. But what really, really not shocked me because it's you, but what really stood mm-hmm. out to me were your wedding vows. I think mm-hmm. I, I don't I'm not gonna call this person out, but I was pl- I was a plus one at a wedding this season. I've been to so many weddings this season, so how will anyone know? But mm-hmm. <laughs> the vows were very and to your point. You already said this, different things work for different people, but the vows were very submissive. It was like, I submit to you. You Mm. are the leader of our family. And I was like, Yeah, yeah. What what did I just listen to? Because Mm. that doesn't align with me. Beautiful wedding, fun time, that doesn't align with me. When I listened to your vows, I was like, Okay, this is the stuff I'm talking about. Yeah. Because thematically, it was, I love you. I choose you to be my husband. But There's you and there's I. (laughs) And like, I was good before you. I'm choosing to be with you. You don't Mm -hmm. complete me, but I want you beside me. And I think Mm -hmm. that was great. So I want to hear more about like what made you say those things and kind of like what was your thought process?
1: Again, bringing like psychology a little bit into it too. I have a bit more of. An avoidant attachment style, which in layperson terms just means I really strive for independence, maybe to a fault, right? Where I just want to rely on myself. I just want to take care of myself. Furthermore, it's like, I don't necessarily trust you, anyone to take care of me. That was a a big mark of my relationship with Jake, my husband, for a while. In the beginning, I saw myself as the role I played in the relationship was to be there for him, take care of him. But I wasn't as quick to allow myself to be vulnerable or be taken care of. And he was sort of like, hey, this isn't going to work if you don't like tell me how you feel or like lean on me for support. Like that's the role I want to play for you as your partner. And I think the world like cracked open for me that day that I was like, wow, there's a person here in my life who is requiring me to be vulnerable and lean on him and open up and get support. Like, I just don't think anyone had ever required that of me. And everyone until then was pretty okay with me being in more of a role of caretaker for them. And I had a part to play in that too. Cause again, it wasn't really comfortable for me to open up and be vulnerable or be taken care of. My choice in those vows was partially It is still really important to me to be self-sustaining and also I choose you as my partner to like trust to take care of me even though we are our own individuals and I believe that's important values to my husband as well. We both are children of divorce so I think it was important for both of us or we didn't really have a choice rather to think What if this doesn't work out? What if this goes south? We've seen it. Like it was our lived experience with our main model for a relationship. I was freaking out about moving down here, moving in together, getting engaged, getting married. You know, so again, it's like for my sanity in a way to like remain independent, not necessarily independent, but like interdependent. I rely on you a healthy amount. I'm not codependent. Which again, I think that's a narrative that's really pushed in our society of what it means to be in love and what it means to be in a relationship is that you're obsessed with this person, they complete you, you want to be with them all the time, you never need a break. Everything's great. That might work for some people or be some people's truth. And like, who am I to say? But I imagine someone that does feel that way probably isn't talking about all the things that they need to be talking about. Probably isn't having the conflict that they need to be having. Jake and I will literally sit down. And before we got engaged, we were like, well, what happens if one of us acquires a disability? What happens if one of us needs to be hospitalized for like inpatient psychiatric care? What happens if one of us, you know, we just went through all of the options in our head. It was like, are you still going to be there? Are you still gonna like, what are you going to need in that moment? We Really talked through all of these things that can happen in life that I think we're maybe more privy to as you know, children of divorce or just in our line of work of being therapists. It's like all day, every day, we see people managing situations they never knew would be their situations, and I think it gives us a healthy dose of skepticism, contributes to us having a really healthy relationship dynamic. Yeah, I don't think I was ever really looking for someone to complete me or to be my everything. And it's not my comfort zone. And I think, again, it's a healthier, more adaptive way of being for me. And I think in general, again, especially with this like codependency that's really pushed on us that I don't think is really true or fair And I do couples work where I have clients that come in and are like, I feel so bad. I like, I want space from my partner, but they're my favorite person in the world. And I love spending time with them. I'm like, it's okay if you need space. Like, it's okay if you need some, again, interdependence, like move away from codependence, which I think, again, is really pushed on us
0: you summed it up perfectly because I too have an avoided attachment style. <laughs> so I know. Energy- <laughs> yeah, you know, also as my friend. The energy is very much like I will not be losing my independence. But yeah. I think that's why that really sparked joy to me because I'm like, that's something I would say. We're like, yeah. I want a companion. I'm outwardly choosing you. I love you. There still has to be some of me in there. And I think codependency is a norm because I almost feel weird being avoided. When I'm in conversations with friends – they're very much like, I'm obsessed with my boyfriend and I want to do everything with him or my husband, my boyfriend, fiance, Yeah, yeah. I want to do everything with him. And like, even when I was dating someone, it's like, you're not going to do this with him. Why would you not? And I'm like, because I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> right. I don't feel like it. And so I think that's another thing where I kind of had to work through like, should I, is it weird? It made me question the whole relationship. I'm like, do I not like them enough? Because I'm not super codependent. And like time has allowed me to be like, no, that's just like who you are. Like you don't want.
1: For me, and maybe this resonates with you, it was an area of growth for me as someone who decided and chose I wanted to be in a long-term partnership, that I needed to learn to be more interdependent on my partner and that I don't know if I could have been a person in relationship That wasn't right, like, and that really applies to all of my relationships too. And I think in my unique situation as well, as a therapist, my job is to essentially have one sided relationships with people all day. I couldn't come home and have one sided relationships with my friends and family and partners. I was so burnt out and so depressed. One of my, you know, years of training in school because I wasn't taking up space in my relationships. And I wasn't depending and leaning on people. And there is a level of that that can be distressing or not as adaptive for people who want to be in relationship. And I think it's something that we've, we've talked about from time to time of like, what is a healthy amount of vulnerability or dependence, and that if your relationships are only functioning, because they're one sided, or you're in sort of the power position for lack of a better term because you're just sort of taking care of yourself and it's not a part of your relationships to rely on people for support yeah it's, it's something that I personally had to have like a journey with and it was an area of growth for me
0: it could definitely be an area of growth for me as we know it but it's good it's kind of like finding a way to have both like if you are avoided it's like it's possible to be in a relationship but there is just like an opportunity to. Lean on people a little more, even like you said in platonic relationships. Like, yeah. I definitely have had friends say to me, like, "Look, I come to you all the time for X, Y, Z. What goes on over there? Like, oh, yeah. I don't really know what what what
1: happens in your world. Like, I don't yeah. really know." I think that's really interesting to to think about the narratives around like who intimacy is for, and that's another part of the sort of like codependency narratives. It's like being emotionally vulnerable is just for your partner, or being physically intimate is just for your partner. And it's like, is it? I know something that's so amazing about mine and Jake's relationship is that we're actually in love with our friends. Like we're in love with so many people. And I think that was a part of my vows too. It's like, you're not my everything. You're not my world because I love and need my friends. And yes, I chose you to kind of revolve my life around but if it were up to me there are a handful of people who I would move cities for who I need in my life in our in my support and I think for some people that would be maybe like a term in the umbrella term of polyamory of multiple loves and I have really romantic friendships where we like really value quality time and like gift giving and like expressing our love yeah, I I have romance with so many people in my life. I have love in so many of my relationships. Both of us really possess that. And that's why our relationship works, where I feel like sometimes that can be really threatening for someone or they really only want that emotional, physical intimacy with that one person. And it needs to be like cut off with all these other people where it's like, yeah, Jake and I really allow, not allow, but welcome that like intimacy in so many of our relationships and I think that's another part of the like interdependence that we have and not the codependence of like I go to you for everything I need you for everything it's like no like not only do I not go to my just myself for that but I have my friends my family like all these other people who I go to to meet these needs and it's not just you and that's so much pressure to put on a partner that I think a lot of us do put on a partner because we're told those types of intimacies are only for our
0: partners right and I think it also takes the experience of not having like not only having it in your relationship for you to understand that and also like prioritizing your friends I mean I've given that speech 80 times sometimes on this podcast we're like yeah I think ever everyone learns but it's like you can't guys and girls you can't really like leave the chat on your friends because to Mm. me like before I mean I joke I'm like when friends post marrying my best friend I'm like we're not getting married like what's happening (laughs) it's like I have been your best friend for 10 years who is this man we do yeah yeah I I think it works the best where like my friends get married and it kind of feels like we're really a village like I'm stoked to play around, and it feels like he it's not even like a fitting in thing it's just like he compliments the team like we all yeah yeah and hang out but we've talked about this before with our relationships where it's like I don't really know what my place is is my place is in this now that you are with him. And so that's, it's really interesting. But like, I've been reading Big Friendship and that's kind of the essence of like, Uh book, honestly, of like having these incredible friendships that, I mean, maybe not everyone has access to. So they put all this pressure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I also think something that's really interesting too is
1: the ebb and flow of friendships and how a friendship can be, platonic in the sense that you don't have sex but we meet this like romantic or love need and then when one of the friends gets into a romantic partnership that like grief and loss that comes Um, and this is something I talk about with clients all the time too it's almost like not necessarily even these friend breakups but like these shifts you were sort of my partner there for a while where we texted every day. We called each other every day. We hung out every day and then boop, one of us got into a relationship and our friendship changed because our partner was starting to meet those romantic needs. And I've had so many experiences in my friendships where we've needed to ebb and flow. And like one of us is single, one of us is in a relationship. Both of us are single. Both of us are in a relationship and I don't think that's something that's talked about enough, kind of more kind of academic term would be queering your relationships or like queer platonic relationships. What does it mean to revolve your world around a friend or to get these emotional, emotional, physical needs from a friend that we say should only be reserved for a partner or like, yeah, you're allowed to grieve and feel lost when your friend dynamic is changing because partners are getting into the mix
0: right and instead most of the times people are very gaslit by those like it's like oh if you're upset and it's like why are you upset i thought you guys are just friends and it's like again going back to the, the point of we just don't leave nuance for a lot of things it's like it oh is, yeah or it's not yeah like, that's totally. your friend or it's not if it's not your friend why are you upset and then yeah. it's like well, why didn't you tell them you like them they're like with someone now and it's like it's it's a lot it's very interesting and like That's where I get judgy because I think people not allowing space for nuance really upsets me. Because it's like, you don't, you just don't get it. (laughs) And you're judging it. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of that judgment comes from when
1: someone really does share and like holds a mirror up to like, hey, this is happening. Or like, I have feelings about this. It can be really hard to even kind of name what's going on because of norms, right? I've had friends who I've really been able to engage in that discussion with of like our friendship is different now and that's sad and it's like yeah it is or friends that are like well this is like the love of my life and so I'm gonna like yeah of course it's gonna change it's like that's again going back to this sort of monogamous codependent crutch of like well this is the love of my life so of course we're gonna like things are gonna change now it's like really why I mean right it doesn't have to and I'm allowed to be hurt that now I've been like devalued in a way
0: you're right especially when it's like someone you said like you said talking to every day like yeah. you're making space for you're, you know all of their ins and outs of their life and then now it's like well I found my person that's why I joke about the 10-year thing it's like you found your person right uh, Right. Oh, okay. Who am yeah. I? Then? Yeah. Right. I'm like, yeah. again, we don't, we don't know that person, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> One final question for you. I would love like some general advice. What would you say to people who are hesitant about starting therapy? And everyone always says like the classic, you should go to therapy. And like, that's just something to throw around. It's like, what would, what would you say?
1: My answer might surprise you. It's okay to not be ready for therapy. Everyone can benefit From therapy because everyone can benefit from having the space to like think and question and have someone listen and challenge it's not easy and it's it takes a willing participant if that makes sense sometimes people come to therapy when they're not ready and it's like what are we doing here We're not talking about the things we maybe need to be talking about or we're just not getting anywhere. There's no movement. And I think that is a misconception that therapist is gonna, gonna like swoop in and fix you and have all the tips and tricks. In my conceptualization of the therapeutic process, like the person doing the work is actually the client. And if you're not ready for that or you're not ready to show up in your own therapeutic process, that's okay. I would be curious why? What are you afraid of? What maybe preconceived notions do you have? Does your life function from just being like booked and busy and like slowing down and thinking for a second? Like we're not encouraged, right? To kind of like slow down and think we're just constantly stimulated, constantly distracted. And therapy might be the first time for someone that they actually have just like the space to like talk and think and like see what sort of comes up and comes out. So I would question like, why? Like, what are your hesitations? And is are those hesitations actually the exact reasons that you need to or should seek therapy? I think also I definitely want to name that not all therapists are created equal and it is a position of power in a therapeutic relationship to be the clinician. Therapy can be unintentionally like harmful to a lot of people and some people have really negative experiences with mental health care and that might be a reason that someone's hesitant and that's again totally valid and totally fair and something I would say to that is just like any relationship finding a therapist that's a good fit that can give you what you're looking for is a process and it's really discouraging especially for the person who's so hesitant to seek therapy and then they do and something happens that's Harmful. It's like so discouraging. And yeah, I imagine that person wouldn't want to try again or like seek someone new, but it is a process. And also, like, your therapist wants to hear about what is going wrong in the therapeutic relationship. Like, it should be a safe enough place where you can say, like, hey, you're five minutes late every session and that really bothers me. And that can be a space where we can actually talk about, like, Why that is, or what you need, or how I can better meet your needs. Or this session really sucked. I didn't want to talk about anything that you asked me about. And it's like, well, how did that come to be that we spent this whole hour not talking about anything you wanted to talk about? Yeah, therapists want that feedback because they want the space to be as beneficial for you as possible. Again, I say that having ghosted numerous therapists for (laughs) hurting my feelings and me not wanting to talk to them about it. So, again, got to confess there. I think I'd also say that therapy isn't nearly as scary as I imagine some people imagine it to be. It's okay to like have certain desires for a therapist and really advocate for those desires, whether it's like certain identities that they have or certain or- theoretical orientations that they have. It's a complicated process, and so if it's not feeling like a good fit, For that phase of your life or that provider. Again, there's nuance, there's always someone that can meet that need for you therapeutically, but it's it's a challenge. I've said it already, but it's just space. Like it's just space, your own space. Maybe the first time ever you actually like have space to just sit and think alongside another person.
0: It didn't surprise me, but it surprised me a little bit that like. Mm -hmm. If you're not ready you shouldn't go because it does take a willing participant. I mean people lie to their therapists, not helpful helpful. Yeah, yeah. They don't share to their share things with their therapist and I think also the advice you encouraged me when I was breaking up with my last therapist you were like, "Well, what did she do?" And if she did something like, "Are you going to tell her she did something? Are you going to give her that feedback?" And it made me think because I was like, I don't know, I just want to ghost her. Like she has a I don't know, she has a million, she has a million clients. Like Mm -hmm. I'm over it. And encouraged me to find a new one who I think is meeting my needs more in this season than that one was. So sure. I think it's all sound advice. I admittedly was one of those people who did therapy because it was like talked about so much. And then my job, they offered it as a free benefit. So I was like, Okay. And you're right. If you're not ready to talk about anything, I've seen several adults in my own life go to therapy and they weren't ready to discuss anything. It's not really helpful. It's not helpful. So I think that's very sound advice. Shelley, thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing so much with us. I loved it. Not
1: to be so cliche, but it really is such an honor. I feel like your guests and your network are just so flawless. Like It is really such an honor to be asked to come on. So yeah, thanks so much for having me. And it was, of course, just nice to see you and talk to you.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Define Normal. If you like the episode or have any feedback for me, please leave a review on the Apple podcast app. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at Define Normal. See you next week.